0: I'd like to welcome you to this meeting. We've been doing a series of studies in Advanced Grace Discipleship course by Lee Turner, and we return to that next week. Tonight we will uh, take uh, a different topic, one that uh, has been on my heart for a number of weeks about God's name uh, revealed and described, because you know when we talk about um, the supreme privilege we have to praise the Lord and to worship Him, we know that it's important for us to have A biblically accurate concept of God. Um, many times that image of God is distorted in our minds due to maybe our upbringing or our culture or our religious tradition. And the Bible says God is love. And when we understand that his nature is loving and good, that's going to really make a difference in our life because the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. On the other hand, there's some people that are so appreciative of love that they ignore the attribute of God's justice. So we want to have what I would call an inductive theology, meaning letting Scripture uh guide our 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 doctrines rather than taking um our preferred doctrine and making scripture fit it. Uh, it's a it's a privilege and responsibility to rightly handle the word of truth. And that's our prayer and whisper that prayer for me as we proceed. So I'll go ahead and share screen as we walk through a little PowerPoint outline. And uh this takes us initially to exodus chapter thirty four verses six and seven. And uh, Ray, can you see that all right? Looks wonderful, okay so friends um when we think about this this topic of God's character, uh the revelation of his name, we think about when we meet someone new, let's say you're you're um uh, going to a, a meeting somewhere. And then you introduce yourself. You usually introduce yourself by your name, right? Maybe a little bit about uh, your family or your occupation. And we see that God is a personal God, and he has a personal name that He's revealed in Scripture. And we're going to see a, a very special passage in uh, the, the Torah, uh, the books of Moses, the book of Exodus in particular. And we're going to see that God, in this occasion, speaks himself audibly to Moses uh, his name and then gives a cluster of characteristics about himself that he wants us to know and to appreciate. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 4 that God is spirit and those who worship him are to worship him as spirit and in truth. Would you agree with me that we need a biblically accurate knowledge of God? That we don't want to diminish his glory? We don't want to distort it based on our own personal ideas. So let's proceed then and look at some scriptures together with a prayer that God would be glorified and we would be edified. In our introduction, we're going to say that God's revelation of his personal name is Yahweh. Now, there are four consonants in Hebrew, and um, many centuries ago, the Jewish people who um, uh, would copy the scriptures were so concerned about uh, mispronouncing or misusing God's name, that they did not pronounce the sacred name. They instead substituted the title Adonai or, or Lord. And so we don't actually know uh, for certain the exact pronunciation of the sacred name of God, but scholars uh, prefer um, the transliteration into English Yahweh. And we're going to see that um, before we get into our, our main text, that there's a passage in the book of Exodus where God has revealed this name previously, uh, to Moses. Cause you remember in, um, earlier in the book, Moses had been, uh, kind of exiled himself and, uh, was a, a shepherd and, uh, he believed that, that God could not use him. He thought, um, his life would have no significant purpose. And uh then God revealed himself uh, at the burning bush, and so here in Exodus chapter three, you might like to turn there with me, we are reminded of how God revealed His name to Moses earlier, and this was before um, Moses returned to Egypt and the ten plagues in the exodus and so here in in Exodus chapter three um And verse 13, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And notice verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So the Hebrew name Yahweh comes from the Hebrew word um, to be or I am. And so, from that name, we see that God is a personal God. I am. He's eternal. Not just I was or I will be, but I am. And he is knowable because he's revealed his name to us. So, uh, it's good to keep this earlier episode in mind. Now we have, uh, subsequently, after God had, had uh, judged Israel for their persecution of the Israelites and judged the false gods of Egypt, through the ten plagues and God parted the Red Sea, we see through uh, the the uh, sacrificial Passover lamb and the blood applied to the doorpost that God's angel of judgment passed over the believing Israelite households. And then, so now we see that God has redeemed His people. And the name of this book, Exodus, is the Greek name of the book, meaning to exit. God brought them out of Egypt. Here we see that God had brought them to Mount Sinai. And we see in chapter 22 that he had given them the Ten Commandments. And the first three indicate that we are to revere God. You shall have no other gods beside me. He says you shall not make an idol. And then he said you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But we see that when Moses went up and received the law, you remember that as he came down, the people of Israel had already broken the law. They'd already um, made the golden calf. they had already been involved in, in immorality, and um, they were on the verge of uh, being totally judged by God, and yet Moses interceded, and God um, demonstrates his mercy by, uh, although disciplining those who were in idolatry and immorality and rebellion, he nevertheless shows his, his forgiveness, and he calls Moses up to receive uh, a second copy of, of the famous Ten Commandments in the law. So here we have in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses, who had the unique privilege of being such a privileged prophet that he could speak to God face-to-face, has has this request to the Lord. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. And imagine um, asking the true and living God directly this question in the context of um, the Old Testament, Moses said, please show me your glory. Wow, what a request. And then he said, God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And so when you see in your English translation, the capital letters, L-O-R-D, that's um, an indication that the sacred name is being used. Yahweh is uh, the name that, is uh, the Hebrew behind the capital letters L-O-R-D. So we see that it's such a sacred privilege to, uh, to have a direct revelation of God that, that um, no one can survive that kind of glory. So he says in verse 20, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. In other words, you can't see my full glory and survive it. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand, and I will pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So there's some anthropomorphism here. In other words, some physical words that apply to human beings that are attributed to God so we can symbolically understand what God is saying. He's saying, I'm not going to show you my full glory. You couldn't survive it, but I'll give you a, a greater glimpse of my glory. Now we come now to our main text, um, which is in chapter 34 of Exodus. And uh, God is now fulfilling what he promised um in, in the verses we just read. So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He's going to receive a second copy of the law because, remember, he broke the first tablets in anger because of the, the immorality that met him when he came down from the mountain. And here we see in verse 5 of chapter 34, now the Lord again capital letters Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And uh, and I wish we could go on. Now, I know the first two-thirds of that revelation, uh, we are very comforted by and cheered by. The last part about his justice is very unsettling. But uh, stay tuned. We're going to try to put that in context to see that it does not contradict his love. And that as believers... and uh, participants in the new covenant, we are indeed safe um, and uh, accepted in him and delivered from condemnation and judgment. So let's take a closer look, friends. I'd like for you to consider with me God's gracious character. So as we look in this passage, uh, notice the words that are used here. We see that when God described himself, the first thing he says that he's merciful. The Hebrew word merciful is not only that he is withholding justice, but that he is compassionate. So as you compare different translations, you'll see different different um ways that the translators put these Hebrew words into English. He's compassionate. Aren't you glad, friends? God is compassionate toward you. He loves you. Uh, he longs to be gracious to you. The second word, uh, New King James Version that I'm using, He's gracious. In other words, He, he bestows favor upon us. We don't deserve all the blessings and favor he gives, but because of his love, because of his compassion, because of his grace, he bestows so many blessings upon us. Whether it's the natural blessings of of um, sunshine and the air we breathe and the rain and, and the crops and, and our, our uh, loving relationships uh, or his blessings of redemption. Also in our list here, he says long-suffering. And the idea there is that God is slow to anger. Now, the Bible does talk about the judicial wrath of God, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But see here that even though in the previous context, uh, the Israelites had, had just tragically broken God's sacred law, even when they've seen all the miracles in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and God's glory on Mount Sinai, we're not talking about secondhand knowledge, friends. We're talking about firsthand observance of God's glory, and yet still they rebelled. And although God disciplined them in the previous chapters, once again, he is maintaining his covenant relationship and assuring Moses that his presence would go with them. He's long suffering. Also, he is good. It's so important, friends, to know that God is good. The Hebrew word chesed uh, is the idea of loving kindness. And you see, the enemy of our souls wants us to think opposite he wants us to think that god is withholding goodness from us that he can't be trusted where really it's satan himself who's not good he's the one who came to our first parents in the garden of eden insinuating that god was holding out on them and deceived them so that eve um, ate the forbidden fruit and adam uh, broke that covenant and here we have all the misery that's fallen of living in a fallen world because satan um distorted their view of god so this is a very important topic that we're looking at today we need to believe that god is good the bible says in nahum one i think it's verse seven the lord is good a refuge in the day of trouble he knows those who trust in him do you believe that god is good look at the person of jesus christ who is the supreme revelation of the father look at his goodness as he healed the brokenhearted and set at liberty those who are captive and healed blind eyes and also we see in our our list here he's abounding in goodness and truth. Truth means that he is real he is the true and living God. all other objects of worship that are false objects of worship, all the idols all the the false religions that do not know the the true and living God revealed in scripture are are worshiping false gods, but God is revealing himself as the true God, the one who is real. isn't that encouraging that you and I are not? imagining a God of our own invention, but we are receiving the revelation of the God, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, the God who was there and the God who has revealed himself. Jesus said also of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So God is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, good and true. Let us worship him, friends. But also I'd like for you to consider with me God's gracious activities. His gracious activities. Notice in verse seven that he says he's keeping mercy for thousands. And in our culture, we're used to computers and and a string of zeros that are very long. But in Bible times, you know, these numbers are huge—not just tens or hundreds. I mean, thousands is a huge crowd. And the Lord is saying he gives, he's keeping mercy to thousands, not just not just one or two, not just a family but to thousands. And again, the word mercy there is the Hebrew word chesed, uh, which previously was translated good. Here, once again, is talking about his love, his grace, his loving kindness, that he is demonstrating as he relates to his people. We see his loving kindness throughout the Bible, don't we? Especially in the New Testament, and especially in the blessings we have in the New Covenant, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Aren't you glad that he has demonstrated loving kindness to you, that he is gracious to you? Here I am at age 67. I don't know how I got here so quickly. But I look back and think of all the ways God has been faithful to me, sustaining me, guiding me, blessing me, in spite of my unworthiness. It's just amazing. I trust you can say amen in terms of your own journey. But also in our text, it talks about how he's forgiving sins. He's saying that he is forgiving iniquity. And transgression and sin, three different words for sin, iniquity, um, the wicked human heart, the world, the flesh, and the devil, twist God's design, iniquity. God forgives that. And God has revealed his law, but we missed the mark so far. Um, we, we transgress his laws. So he forgives transgression when we cross the line of uh, the boundaries of his good intentions for us. He forgives transgressions. And He forgives sins. If you think of an archer aiming for the arrow, aiming the arrow for the target, uh, the bullseye. If the bullseye represents perfect righteousness, all of us have missed the bullseye. I guess we've even missed the target altogether. Um, and so, but God forgives uh, sins uh, that we've missed the mark. Romans 3:23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news is that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen, friends? So let us rejoice in God's gracious character and also his gracious activities. He demonstrates that character in treating people with loving kindness, forgiving sins as we come to him uh, through the redemption that he offers. As we continue in this series, though, we're going to look at the last part of this text, which is more difficult to interpret, and one that we need to to, um, interpret in light of his love and grace. And that is, we're going to see in our text here, that uh, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. And so what does that mean? Well, I'm going to call this God's judicial activities. The Bible clearly shows us that God is not only our creator, Not only is he uh, providentially involved in human history, but he is the judge. He is the only judge. He is the supreme judge. And because he is righteous, his standards of justice are true. And because of his sovereignty, he will enforce his justice. And so notice here it says he does not acquit the guilty. He doesn't excuse the guilty. You see, I, I was reading a... Writing of a, a prominent Christian psychiatrist, that he he wants people to be so assured of God's love that he he virtually ignores God's justice, and although he teaches that God's law is good and beneficent, um, he implies that that justice um, is uh, psychologically unhealthy and basically should not be acknowledged. But again, if we approach the Scripture in an inductive way, where we let God's word. Shape our theology. We know that that is the only way we can be assured of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Second to me, th- three, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, right? For instruction in righteousness. So we want God's word to shape our theology because we want to know God in his fullness. So he does not excuse the guilty. You know, see, in our culture, we here in North America, have inherited a a philosophy of secular humanism, um, which says that there are no absolutes, no absolute right and wrong, and humanism um, rejecting the idea that that people are accountable to a higher power. And we see the devastating results of that worldview that's been uh, seeping through our school systems and taught in our popular culture. That doesn't erase the conscience of people. Now it may desensitize the conscience, but Romans chapter two says even the unbeliever has an inner witness in his or her conscience that, that there is a standard of right. And if we don't keep that standard, then we're in trouble. God doesn't excuse the guilty. Secondly, he administers what I'll call providential justice. The word providence means that God doesn't just wait to the end of the age to judge, but he is involved in human history, whether it's the flood in Noah's day, whether it's judging Egypt to, uh, as they had thrown the baby Israelite boys into the Nile, drowning them, committing infanticide. And yet the tenth plague, we see that the firstborn of the Egyptians, who did not take shelter under God's sacrificial lamb, were judged. You see, God administers providential justice. And we need to take a closer look at that, would you? Here it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. What does that mean? i like to suggest that there are natural consequences of sin. In Galatians 6-7, it says, what a person sows, he will what? He will also reap. So, in the book of Proverbs, there is much teaching about God's design law. Uh, if someone digs the pit, he'll fall into it. If someone um, is living contrary to God's moral law, then they are not going to, they should not expect a happy, healthy A successful life. There are natural consequences. As I counsel people week by week and hear their stories, so often I hear of the consequences of poor choices, whether it's through alcohol abuse or drug abuse or through a physical or verbal or sexual abuse in a person's life. We see that sometimes these consequences are because of someone's own sin. Other times it's because of the sin of others. And here we have what I'll call generational consequences you see each of us as we think about our own family tree we know that um the uh the character of our grandparents on our father's side our mother's side affected us either in a positive way or a negative way we see that our parents our father or mother depending on how much they were in our life whether whether um your parents divorced or maybe one of them died and you had a step parent. Uh, so, but as you think through your formative years, we see that if a, if parents did not model love and integrity, if they didn't accept you and nourish you, then there can be a, a lack of attachment and that can cause personal consequences in you. We're talking here about how that there's not only natural consequences of what God calls the father. And he, in that culture, the father would be kind of the head of not only the nuclear family, but often extended families live together. And so the father, the kind of patriarch of the family, if he was a rascal, there was going to be negative consequences to the whole household. And so there's generational consequences. I'll call that the social dimension. First Corinthians 15:33 says, "Bad company corrupts good morals." I talk to people, um, someone might say they've uh, had trouble with alcohol since uh, uh, their early teens. And how did they, were they introduced to alcohol? Their their parents drank. Or someone who's been struggling with addiction to pornography. How are we introduced to that? Well, a family member uh, introduced them to pornography and it became uh, obsessive because they were introduced to that sexual arousal before God's intended time. And because of the intensity, the isolation, the concentration, and the seduction of pornography becomes a besetting sin of the person's life. And yet it goes back uh sometimes to their family of origin where uh I remember talking to someone recently where just open sexual immorality was in the home when they were growing up. So there are generational consequences. It talks about the fathers, the children. And remember, in that culture, sometimes there would be three or four generations living basically in proximity to each other where these social relationships uh, would have a ripple effect. Now, in my family, uh, on my mother's side, the generations were pretty close. I have pictures with my great-grandmother, my grandmother, myself, you know, my child. So there's four generations. Um, And so sometimes there can be four generations living together, experiencing the natural consequences, of sin, sometimes generational consequences, as there's a ripple effect uh, in terms of how people treat each other or mistreat each other. But also, what all suggests is that there are cumulative consequences. Namely, that God not only deals with us as individuals, that's the sowing and reaping principle, but also as extended families because uh, of the social influence, for better or for worse, that happens in families. But then we see that, that in a national scale, there can be cumulative consequences. In 2 Corinthians 7.14, God summons the people to recognize this when he says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal what? Heal their land. That's talking about a national invitation. And I think that invitation goes for America, it goes for Canada, any nation. That we can turn to God and have his favor, or we can turn away from God from God and have his providential discipline. let me give you some examples in Genesis chapter fifteen I'll turn back there right now. We have a mysterious verse in Genesis fifteen where God is having a uh, making a covenant with Abraham, so this goes back about a two thousand b c and this is before um, um, Jacob was born, the the nation of Israel was there before they went down to Egypt. And notice what we read in Genesis chapter 15, where he says um, in verse 15 of Genesis 15, he says to Abraham, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, meaning they will return to, to, uh, to Canaan. They shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'll read that again. For the iniquity of the Amorites; those are the the godless, pagan inhabitants of of Israel or Canaan. God says their their iniquity is not yet complete. So if you picture uh, a cup of wine, a big a big um, goblet, and imagine that cup being slowly filled. Well, when, when it gets filled to the brim and overflows, that's a picture of God's patience running out and God intervening in judgment. And God is giving the Canaanites four centuries to repent. So when we fast forward to the book of Joshua, where God has delivered his people from Egypt after 40 years of being sidetracked in the wilderness for their discipline, uh, because of their unbelief and rebellion, they're entering Canaan, but God is simultaneously judging the godless, child-sacrificing, immoral Canaanites, as well as giving the Israelites uh, the promised land. Such an important concept, friends, to understand the the Bible in context. We think of the book of Exodus earlier on in the the book, how I alluded to a moment ago, that the ten plagues um, were a valid expression of God's providential justice because Egypt had severely uh, persecuted the Israelites. Uh, with horrific social injustice and, and oppression where they built Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's cities and their sons were thrown into the Nile River. And we see that's the context of Noah being rescued from that and then raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So the plagues of Israel were not arbitrary punishments, friends, but they were targeted to uh, to demonstrate that the false gods of Egypt were false gods. And that God was holding um, Egypt accountable uh, for uh, for extensive sins against God's God's people. So we see that in terms of God judging Egypt. And also we see uh, in the book of Judges, there are seven cycles of where after Joshua goes to be with the Lord, the next generation or two are faithful to God. And then they, they get sidetracked by the Canaanites that remained in the land. And for about seven cycles, we see the people of God straying into idolatry and immorality, and then God withholding his protection and allowing oppressive treatment of the Israelites by other nations like the Philistines. And then what happens? Then the people are so oppressed that they remember that um, God had redeemed them, and they call out to God in repentance. And then God sends a hero like Gideon, um, uh, and then God delivers them. We see that happen about seven times in the book of Judges. but. Uh, the key hanging on the back door of the book of Judges is something that is tragically true of our culture today. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why Judges is such a sad book to read. And then, friends, there's not only what I'll call providential justice in history that you can see throughout the Bible, but there is a final judgment of individuals after death. Hebrews 9 27 is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So we see that this is an incentive for people to recognize that yes, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we need to repent and believe the gospel. Revelation chapter 20 gives that awesome, fearsome picture of the great white throne judgment, and it says that people will be judged according to the record of the books, which is a symbolic way of saying that they will be judged according to the light. Uh, that they received or rejected, and according to the severity of, of their disobedience to God and their harm to their fellow human beings. So there will be a final uh, administration of justice. But it says um, the key issue there is, has a person's name been written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then we're saved. If it's not there, then we're accountable for our own sins. And that's what points us to the importance of the gospel message, doesn't it? Well, in conclusion, let me give us some practical applications. We need to reveal God's grace and justice. Again, we, we would suggest that some people see God as an angry God and they need to discover that God is essentially a God of love and compassion, as we saw in our text. And yet this love and justice does not ignore the need. I'm sorry, this. Wonderful description of God's love and grace and mercy does not um, diminish or remove his attribute of justice. I think Romans 11.22 puts it concisely. The context here is um, God's dealing with Israel as a nation. When they rejected their Messiah, there was going to be national consequences. And then, amazingly, we Gentiles, when we receive um, Yeshua, Uh, Jesus and the gospel were grafted into the olive tree of redemption. And God says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. And those who fell, severity. In other words, those who rejected Jesus as their Messiah, there was severity. But toward you, meaning those of us who received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, goodness. So, friends, we need both. And uh, we see that um, demonstrated throughout the New Testament as well. Secondly, I'd like to... Point out that God is supremely revealed in his son. Now we read in Hebrews chapter four that God has spoken in many ways and in different forms throughout biblical history, but he has spoken in these last days supremely through his son, through whom he created the world. Jesus said in John 8:58, and this this will stun us when we read it in John 8:58. Jesus says to the skeptics who are challenging him, Before Abraham was. I am. The Greek word "ego me is emphatic. I myself am. He is quoting um, what we have read in the Book of Exodus. Well, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew that that was blasphemy. Unless, of course, Jesus is saying what is true, and of course, he is saying what is true. But they knew exactly what he meant by that phrase, and we should as well. And so, um, when we understand. Um, that God has revealed in his Son, is such a consolation to us because here we have, in a way that that transcends the Old Testament, doesn't contradict the Old Testament, but does transcend it, that we see in Jesus, his virtue, his humility, his heroism, his righteousness, his love, his courage. every Every good quality is perfectly revealed in him. So as our Lord was preparing to go to Calvary, one of his disciples said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll suffice us. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't recognize me? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So we need to read the Gospels, friends, with grace glasses on, with an awareness that the virtues we see in Jesus are actually um, an expression of, of the character of the true and living God. So we see that God is gracious and he's just. And we see that perfectly balanced and in harmony in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his first coming, he came as a suffering servant to go to the cross and to redeem us. But the Bible says he comes the second time, perhaps in our lifetime, uh, to administer justice and to bring in the kingdom of God, which will involve uh, judging Nations in history, as we pointed out earlier, um, where that justice will be culminated. As the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 describes, the stone cut without hands will come and crush the foot of the statue. And the whole statue of Gentile godless rule will be uh, disintegrated and blown away. And then the kingdom of God will be here in his fullness. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The third point I'd like to make in conclusion is know God personally. By receiving Jesus Christ. In John 1.12 it says, As many as received him, meaning Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Isn't it a privilege we have to recognize that although God's justice means that we're in trouble because of our sin, God's grace wins the day. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So if anyone is, um, is listening or viewing this recording, it isn't sure that they're going to heaven when they die. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, please don't hesitate to contact Grace Fellowship International. And one of us would love to give you further resources about the gospel. And the assurance of salvation. And then finally, I'd like to mention that we need to be transformed through new covenant worship. What do we mean by new covenant worship? Well, if you turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter three, we see that there's a principle in Scripture that we become like what we worship. And so, in and in the negative side of that is the Bible says people that worship idols will become like those idols they will become lifeless they will become one dimensional um they will become artificial however you want to say it but we see that when we worship god in spirit and in truth we become more and more like jesus more and more loving virtuous good and we see here in second corinthians chapter 3 remember in the context is talking about how the old covenant which we have been talking about in exodus although it was a valid covenant at that time, has now been transcended by the new covenant, which our Lord accomplished through his death on the cross. And even though there are additional benefits of the new covenant that Israel will receive when they receive their Messiah at the end of the age and so forth, we see that as believers we are participating in the benefits of that new covenant, like the book of Hebrews describes. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is inviting us to really live in the the joy and the confidence and the consolation of this new covenant. And it says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Couldn't we use more liberty, more freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from life-controlling problems? There is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That English word transformed comes from the Greek word metamorphosis. So as you and I worship the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Spirit and the truth, then you and I are going to be transformed by the Spirit of God to be more and more like Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Not by self-effort, not just by religious ritual, but by the ministry of the Spirit of God in us. Well, friends, this is so uh, challenging to us because the Bible says that it's such a privilege for you and I to praise the Lord. Praising him means to give him glory for who he is. And I hope this Bible study has given us additional biblical teaching about the true nature of God uh, in, in these ways. And so praising the Lord is just so, so valuable, so encouraging. Hebrews 13, 15 says, as new covenant priests, we are to offer God continually a sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice means sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes the circumstances seem to contradict it. Sometimes it's countercultural. But give God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Hebrews thirteen, verse 15. Friends, this also means that we need to persevere. Although we're living in a fallen world and things are hard, as we've been learning in the greatest discipleship course, God is good, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger. And also Romans chapter 12 instructs us that because God is just and that ultimately God will hold people accountable after this life, that frees up you and me uh, to not take revenge, but rather to forgive. So in Romans chapter 12 it says, do not take revenge, but rather um, we are to not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, uh, that we are to, in the words of our Lord Jesus, love even our enemies. Because it's not about us uh, insisting that every jot and tittle of justice will be accomplished in this life. We know that our judicial, judicial system is often flawed, and injustice often happens, but ultimately justice will be done. And for those of us who have refuge in God's grace through the new covenant, We know that um, being under grace is a secure and comforting and consoling place to be. So let us forgive those who have hurt us. Let us trust God to make things right in time and eternity. And let us worship him together in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for giving us this revelation in your word that you revealed yourself to Moses in a glorious way. You put him in the cleft of the rock and Moses such a glorious experience that when he came down, his face shone with, with the radiance of being in your presence. Lord, as we have studied your word, as we pray, as we praise you, I pray that all of us would be not only true believers in you through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but through fellowship with you, through abiding in Christ, through living under your grace, may our communion with you cause us to have a radiant countenance of love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Be glorified in our lives, and we pray this with thanksgiving and adoration through Jesus Christ. Amen.